Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Afsane Beschloss, founder and CEO of the Rock Creek Group. Before founding Rock Creek, Afsane worked with the World Bank and other financial institutions to develop energy projects around the world. As pressure mounts on banks to move away from fossil fuels, I'll ask her about the special role that multilateral development banks can play in the transition to clean energy. We'll also talk about recent guidance from the U.S. Treasury Department that seeks to curb fossil fuel financing at these institutions and what it all means for the future. Stay with us. Okay, Afsane Beschloss from the Rock Creek Group. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's wonderful to be with you. So, Afsane, um, we're going to talk today about multilateral development banks, or MDBs, and their connections with energy and climate change and the environment. But we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So what sort of led you into this world? So I'll try not be too long-winded, but I was in high school. I was born in Iran, and uh, obviously a country that uh, was an oil and gas producer. And I remember my uh, teachers at school sent me to uh, some laboratories, even when I was in high school. And uh, and I started looking at how various uh, uh, labs looked at the various end products of oil at that stage. So fast forward, I um, end up at Oxford uh, as a student, and my professor had a lot of interest in energy, one of my professors, Robert Mabro, and he ended up starting something called the Oxford Energy Institute. Again, um, a lot in uh, oil and gas at that time, but also already starting to look at energy efficiency. And um, Robert told me, you know, Afsane, a lot of men know all about oil. Why don't you learn about natural gas and differentiate yourself? So natural gas is, you know, we knew that it was cleaner. It had, um, you know, less uh, environmental issues, uh, plentiful in a lot of countries. A lot were flaring it, so creating even a bigger environmental problem even at that point. So that's how I got interested and then fast forward, I went to work um, briefly at JP Morgan. And because of this work, actually by total coincidence, somebody who'd been uh, also in the uh, master's doctor program at Oxford um, ahead of me was in my JP Morgan program. And he recruited me and I ended up working on energy again. And then last but not least, I realized I really want to work in uh, development and apply to the World Bank and uh, joined the World Bank as uh, as what they call a young professional. It's, it's to be like, you know, they take 20 people or so and uh, you go into, eventually into the management of the World Bank. And, uh, and I said, I want to work on energy. And I got to work in the energy department on clean energy and energy policy and energy investment. So that's sort of my history. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, there's a million questions I want to ask you about each of those <laughs> elements of your life. But um, but let's, let's stick to our sort of main focus for today, which is going to be uh, multilateral development banks, such as the World Bank. Um, so we're going to be using the term MDB. Uh, just hammer that into everyone's heads. MDB is multilateral <laughs> yes. development bank. Um, before we talk about the sort of energy applications of MDBs, can you give us a little historical background about sort of how the World Bank and other MDBs came into existence and what goals they were trying to accomplish? 
Absolutely. The World Bank, as you said, and a whole group of multilateral development banks um, are financial institutions. And as described by the U.S. Treasury, they provide financial aid and technical support at this point to developing countries uh, to help them support uh, their economic management and to reduce poverty. Now, the interesting thing is the oldest uh, MDB is the World Bank, which was founded in 1944, along with the IMF at the Bretton Woods Conference. And it was called the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and was created to rebuild Europe and parts of Asia after the destruction of World War II. And uh, with the U.S.-led Marshall Plan taking over much of Europe's reconstruction in the late 40s, the World Bank shifted its focus to funding uh, development projects in low-income countries and eventually to fighting um, poverty itself. So I remember going to, the, when I was um, running the finances of the World Bank, going to Tokyo and the Tokyo office of the World Bank reported to me and uh, and um, I remember everyone was just uh, so nice. The banks, everybody in Japan was so nice. And there was a picture of uh, of, you know, the famous bullet trains in Tokyo and the World Bank had financed the first bullet train in in uh, Japan. So that's the sort of things that the bank was doing in those days. And obviously today the bank, as you know, is part of a system along with a dozen regional development banks. There are many, many more development banks, as you know, and they include the European Investment Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the African Development Bank, the Islamic Development Bank. And the youngest one is the New Development Bank, which was founded in 2014 by a group of countries that include the BRICS. So the, the, it's a much bigger group of uh, financial institutions today. Yeah, that's really interesting. And BRICS being Brazil, Russia, India, China, is that right? Thank you. Exactly. Thank you for defining that. Okay, great. Um, so you already mentioned one example of a project that the World Bank might fund, the, the bullet train in Japan. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Like, What are the types of projects that, let's say, the World Bank typically invests in around the world? And what role do energy projects specifically play in that portfolio? So, as you know, the World Bank uh, and the other multilaterals invest across the whole food chain. So from uh, energy to health to education, uh, financial inclusion, and so on and so forth. And when it comes to energy and infrastructure, which has always historically been a very large part of um, of uh, the activities of the World Bank Group, whether it's the bank group, which, by the way, provides loans to um, sort of middle income countries as well as IDA that helps support the most fragile and the 74 poorest countries. What uh, ends up happening is two sorts of, um, uh, if you want to simplify it, loans that go into what you would call hard infrastructure and loans that go into policy development and making a better set of conditions so that countries can develop their infrastructure in a more productive way. So it can go both into the hard as well as the soft part of energy, if you want to think about it that way. That's really helpful. And so I imagine, you know, when I think about hard energy infrastructure, I think about things like power plants, exactly. or maybe import export facilities, obviously, you know, um, transportation infrastructure, water and sewer infrastructure. Can you give us some examples of what the sort of softer uh, infrastructure investments might be when it comes to energy? 
Oh, sure. So um, softer could be what should be the pricing for energy. You know, uh, we're all interested in more efficient energy, right, today. So is energy priced at uh, at market levels? Uh, a lot of uh, uh, poorer countries may subsidize energy, right? And then that can lead to wastage of energy. Uh, so that would be like one example where uh, where bank or um, other uh, parts of the World Bank group would work with uh, countries to make sure, for example, need for co uh, conservation is alongside reducing subsidies and then making sure those small users or lowest income are provided some sort of um, subsidy so that it makes for the fact that they're paying more for energy so that you're using energy efficiently, right? At the same time, you're not um, you're not hurting the lowest income people who may not be able to afford energy. Right, that's great. And it's funny you mentioned subsidies. We just recently did an episode with Joe Aldi from um, the Harvard Kennedy School on uh, energy subsidies in a U.S. context, which are all you know primarily about uh, supporting uh, energy producers. Uh, but we also have subsidies in the U.S. for low-income energy consumers, and uh, they're very prominent around the world. It's actually we should do an episode on. Um, energy subsidies around the world. It's sometimes. a great so, topic because, you know, often energy, you know, people in all countries argue for energy prices being lower so that they can help the lowest income. But I remember being in Bangladesh and, um, and working on a natural gas project. And interestingly, the natural gas came into only urban areas, right? So the rural poor had no access to it. They had to still use wood. And the other thing was that uh, natural gas was priced almost at zero, and when we worked with the government, uh, they said, "Well, you know, you know, we want to make sure low-income people are uh, are being able to meet their energy needs." But it was in fact the middle-income people in the cities, and last but not least, what it had led um, people to do was that they were leaving their gas stoves on because they didn't want to buy matches. Oh wow! Because they were almost not, they were paying almost nothing for the natural gas coming into their houses. So the poor farmer or the poor rural populations were paying much more, in fact, for their wood and and LPG, while um, while the city folk were paying almost nothing and not putting their stoves off. So that's why you need to make sure these things are done correctly. Yeah, that's so interesting. And, and LPG for, for the non-energy nerds out there is uh, liquefied petroleum gases, Thank you so such much. as propane. <laughs> so uh, let's turn now to um, to an issue that uh, has been in the news quite a bit uh, over the last really several years, which is the need for um, greenhouse gas emissions to be deeply reduced and the pressure that that is exerting on banks around the world, including MDBs, um, particularly when it comes to financing investments that are related uh, to fossil fuels. So can you talk a little bit in general terms about how MDBs are sort of experiencing those pressures? how they've responded, and then how those responses might differ from the ways that privately owned banks have responded around the world. And I know that's a lot to, to ask, to so ask. <laughs> please feel free to take that in any direction you want. Sure. So there's increasing pressure across the entire financial sector right now to play a larger role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, as you said. Uh, and we can see that with everything from um, new climate and ESG-focused funds to the growth in the carbon offset market. And this is the new reality. Uh, we actually at Rock Creek just hosted a climate summit this summer. And the chief investment officer for the largest public endowment in the U.S. told me everyone is looking at climate as something that matters now. 
And uh, the last era was about hydrocarbons, whereas the era we're about to start is going to be all about renewables and sustainable sources. And if you knew this person, if you had asked him the same question literally a year ago, he would have said something very different. So I think what is really important right now is even if you look at the numbers, like in, I think, like between 2017 and 2019, uh, commercial and investment banks, um, invested trillions in fossil fuels. That's just a couple of years ago, right? And a number of those were Chinese banks. A number of them were European banks. Uh, not, you know, a number of them were U.S. banks. So you had all these banks still investing a lot in fossil fuels. And I think the power of the MDBs um, has been the ability to put in resources. And for every dollar that an MDB puts, the smart thing would be to leverage it to get 10 or $20, um, if not more, from the private sector to go into renewable energy so that we can tackle these gas emissions. And last but not least, uh, as you know, the largest growth in energy is happening in emerging markets, right? That's where the largest growth is China, but also other emerging markets. And if we're going to do anything about marginal increases uh, that are happening right now, we need to tackle that at the same time as we increase efficiency on existing gas emissions across the globe. Right. And and this this might be a difficult question to answer, but but your response made me wonder, do you have a sense of whether MDBs are moving away from fossil fuels faster than banks in the private sector or at the same rate or slower? Or is there a, a clear way to compare? You know, it is actually not the easiest thing, even though I've worked for a long time in uh, at the World Bank uh, and I know the other MDBs incredibly well and have worked with them and continue to, um, to cooperate because, you know, public um, investments are probably the most important kinds of investments we can talk about in uh, clean energy. But um, but one thing that is interesting is I would love to have more transparency around the numbers. But I would not say that in terms of, if you look at the numbers, you wouldn't say that the MDBs have been the leaders. They've been kind of going along at the same pace as commercial institutions. More recently, though, a lot of the MDBs uh, have been making a lot more um, you know, speeches and policies to increase allocations to renewables. But if you go back and look at the numbers and just purely concentrate on numbers, to the, you know, and uh, the last that I had seen was numbers for, uh, let's say, 2017 to 2019. The largest amounts were going into LNG projects. They were going into oil and gas, and um, and even coal. Right. So, um, so that's only two years ago. Right. Now, obviously, a lot has changed since 2019, but we have to look at published numbers and actuals. So we need a lot more push by the MDBs, even beyond what they're doing today, which is, I'm sure, a lot to um, to increase this uh, push even more. And I think um, hopefully, you know, the Treasury Department's recent guidelines will be helpful in that direction. Yeah, that's great. And so let's talk about those now. So um, in mid-August, the U.S. Treasury Department issued new guidance for MDBs on uh, their support for fossil fuel-related energy projects. Can you give us an overview of what that guidance um, said, and uh, you know, to what extent does it actually bind or affect the decisions that MDBs ultimately make? 
So the Treasury Department's um, new guidelines um, talks about how uh, to direct sort of U.S. votes on these new projects at the MDBs. And in some of the MDBs, the U.S. obviously has a larger voting right than in others. Uh, but specifically, the U.S. will oppose all new coal-based plants as well as oil-based energy projects, with some rare exceptions for the latter meaning oil. For example, in humanitarian crisis or as backup generation for clean off-grid energy systems. Um, so the U.S. Uh, will also oppose upstream natural gas projects and will support midstream and downstream natural gas projects if certain criteria are met. It's interesting because, um, you know, as you well know, some of the Chinese um, uh, banks have been supporting coal projects. There's still coal projects getting built as we speak in emerging markets. And, um, and I think what would be really helpful is not just for the U.S. to have this directive, but really all the countries across all MDBs to have the same directive with regard to coal to start with, you know, to put that aside as one thing that nobody's going to do because the power of coal in terms of making our environment worse is just huge. And um, so that's sort of, um, you know, going back to the U.S., I think it's important to have its own voting um, direction, but also uh, to influence others who can, who can, um, stop uh, investing in coal. The other thing is, um, is in terms of, um, for example, the Asian Development Bank has just issued a new energy policy also in um, 2021 that prohibits financing of any coal mining, oil and natural gas, field exploration, drilling, extraction uh, activities. Uh, and this policy leaves the door open also uh, to LNG with some conditions. So that is sort of a good direction. But uh, again, we would um, hope that the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, uh, which has said they will end coal financing in 2022, maybe could bring it forward. <laughs> and uh, and uh, President Jin Li Kuan, who's very smart and very, you know, one of the uh, best development economists, uh, could stop it even right now and not invest in anymore. So because everyone that we do, I think, is going to, um, not be helpful. Um, and then also um, their influence, obviously, on the commercial institutions will be very important. That's not so much in this Treasury um, release on guidelines. It's really specifically about what U.S. will vote for and not vote for. And um, and I think one of the things that um, since I worked a lot on renewable energy, on solar, wind for many, many years, uh, I also see that you, you're not going, I mean, just like in the U.S., right? We're not, we can't go 100% to renewables as much as I'm trying to at work in Rock Creek. You know, we are trying to um, to go to zero emissions at home. I'm trying to do that wherever I have any influence in our investments. We're trying to do that. And if each of us do that, I think that will be a first step. But more importantly is that none of us can do it 100%, right, today, as much as, um, as we try. Uh, and so if we're getting on a plane, if, you know, planes are using... <laughs> Uh, oil products. So, so the point is, how do we get to, from point A to B as soon as and as fast as possible? And that sort of takes me to natural gas, where this guidance is just not a hundred percent clear. So, if I'm a small emerging market with local gas, not to build LNG to sell, but just for my own natural gas, and I have to develop it so I can have local power at the same time as I'm doing solar and wind and 
you know, for me, that ends up being cheaper. Should we not let that country do that and instead get them to do a coal power plant because some bank finances the coal power plant? Um, so we just have to be careful so that policy, which has really good intentions and guidelines that have the best of intentions, don't lead to the more fragile economies and the lower income countries having less choice than we do ourselves in the U.S. Yeah. And that, you know, that's exactly the, the, the next question that I wanted to ask you about. And before we do that, we've mentioned LNG a couple times and not to be confused with LPG. LNG is Thank liquefied you. natural gas, which is methane that's super cooled and then transported across exactly. the ocean. Exactly. So, uh, so the, the gas gets produced, it gets liquefied, it gets into a tanker, it goes all over the world across the ocean and sold, um, you know, let's say in Japan or somewhere else where they don't uh, produce energy themselves. So exactly right. And again, that's very different than, let's say, a Bangladesh producing natural gas to um, to create power for its own use in terms of the A to Z of wastage and efficiency while they're pushing for you know, increasing um, solar and wind. And of course, island economies, which is shocking. If you look at most island economies, you find they're importing 90% diesel. Right here in the US, in Hawaii, 90% of energy is diesel. And if you look at their plans to get out of diesel into renewable energy in a place that has so much sun, it's just so, um, you know, it's uh, not may not be in our lifetime. So, yeah, it's challenging. We actually we're trying to set up an episode on Hawaii right now. So oh, that'd be uh, so interesting. I can't yeah. wait to listen. So, um, you know, one thing that listeners might be thinking as we're talking about these investment uh, guidelines from the Treasury Department is whether or not there might be an element of hypocrisy here. So here in the United States, you know, we're still drilling lots of new oil and gas wells. We're still mining a lot of coal and burning it. Um, and obviously, the administration is trying to move us away from that. But um, but it can't happen overnight, as you said. And so um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the sort of trade-offs and the tensions that we're seeing here between, you know, the need to reduce emissions, but also the need to support economic development, and also, you know, trying to do it in a way that's not colonial or neo-colonial or has, you know, echoes of that uh, troubled past. I think the more, you know, I, I think, you know, what you're putting your finger on, the more these MDBs are partners to the countries that they're lending to, instead of, you know, directing them and ordering them what they can do and what they can't do, the better. I think the next phase of these development agencies and the multilaterals should be partnering with the poorest countries to make sure, since we do know that solar, we do know that wind, we do know that other forms of energy efficient uh, products are more economic today, just work on those, right? Instead of directing them, you cannot do X or you cannot do Y, positively work with them to develop uh, solar and wind. And again, going back to the data I was referring to, that's what I find shocking, that uh, that solar and wind is such a small part of what the MDBs have done in the past, right? So again, you can do these things directly. Um, and, you know, the same point you made, I find that, you know, um, uh, you know whether it is uh, the World Bank directing a country, you cannot develop your own oil or gas, or, or um, an investor in the U.S. being given, you know, you cannot do X or Y. 
give people options, right? Show them uh, what's economic, right? And that has was his. You know, with the World Bank that I joined, was doing that. It would work on education and know-how sharing, so that if you are a small, fragile country, you would see, and you would get the help and you'd get the technical assistance to develop the cheapest energy for you. That's appropriate for you, and then you wouldn't have this. You know what you refer to as potential hypocrisy or. Um, or, you know, having two rules for different countries uh, or for myself and for you having two different rules. Right, totally. And and that role of um, kind of soft investment, as you termed it earlier, yes. seems particularly important here when we're thinking Absolutely. about, you know, integrating renewables and developing markets where they can, you know, effectively uh, compete uh, and developing the capacity to maintain an electricity grid that can manage these high levels of renewables. Are those types of projects um, becoming more common? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and um, and I think you know. Um, on the one hand, you have um, you have the hard part, as we said, uh, of solar and wind. In fact, you know, if you go to a country like Morocco, they have been um, you know leaders in developing solar power, and um, and and so you know you see that uh, with your own eyes. If you go to a lot of Latin American countries, of course, hydro was a big area, but now more and more wind is uh, getting to be very important in these countries. But then the soft part of it uh, that you refer to, I think, is also um, really, really important. And again, going back to the MDBs, where the MDBs can really play a big role in saying, you know, we're learning this in this country, and this is very appropriate, what we're learning this experience uh, for this island economy is very appropriate to you, you know, another island economy, or if, uh, and, you know, we, again, that was sort of a very classic part of the World Bank job, which is this know-how sharing, and then um, within a loan, coming up with uh, not just conditionality um, in a very, again, directive way, but advice and, you know, this is the best uh, state-of-the-art way to do a solar plant in this kind of environment. And this is the cheapest way to access um, what you're trying to do in renewable energy. And if you, you know, pure economic analysis, if you were to use this coal power plant that was offered to you or this uh, oil or gas, this is, you know, the cost and this is what the emissions so that countries can make those decisions for themselves. Right. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so, Afsane, uh, one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, which you've already referred to a little bit, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more of your thoughts on, which is, you know, to what extent uh, do you think other banks uh, or other, you know, um, nations might step in and fill the gap that's left behind by the World Bank not investing in, let's say, a coal-fired power plant or a new oil field in a developing nation. To what extent um, do you think these efforts are going to really matter on the ground? Uh, and to what extent do you think uh, you know other banks might step in to fill the void? Well, you know, um, as we speak, a lot of investors um, are stepping in to invest in the best projects. And what they're finding is some of these renewable projects in uh, emerging markets and in some of these low-income countries are actually high-return projects. Uh, and so what you're seeing is, in fact, uh, the first year of COVID, you know, last year, uh, some of the studies uh, showed us that, in fact, oil and gas projects started getting delayed, and it was the uh, renewable projects that still did go ahead. And we're seeing similar things uh, as we speak. 
uh, the other thing is that in the private sector, there's a huge pressure today from the youth, from other stakeholders, putting pressure on companies, you know, as you saw with Exxon, right, with Engine One, not, you know, to get out of oil and gas and to increase their uh, share of renewable energy. So you're having that pressure, which is really um, hopefully going to correct things. And I think Engine One is looking for some some other company to uh, to work on. Uh, and these things will take time. You know, an oil and gas company that's sitting on huge reserves of uh, oil and gas or a coal company that's sitting on huge coal um, reserves is not going to change its behavior. But then the banks will follow, right? The other financial institutions will follow because if pension plans, uh, sovereign oil funds, uh, university endowments insist on investing in clean energy, that's where the banks will go. And that's and it would be good if the MDBs kind of become more leaders uh, and bigger leaders in this. Yeah, well, let's, let's certainly hope that that's the case. Exactly. Um, so let's move on now to our last question, which we ask all of our guests, uh, which is to recommend something that they've read or watched or heard. It could be related to the environment or even not that closely related to the environment, uh, but just something you've been enjoying watching or reading or listening that you would recommend to our listeners. So uh, Afsane, what's at the top of your stack? So there is a new book uh, from MIT Press, the um, U.S. federal government's 50-year role in causing climate crisis. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I'm certainly very curious to to read about it. And it was done by Gus uh, Speth, who I'm sure you know. And um, and anyways, it's uh, about uh, it covers sort of the period from LBJ through uh, President Trump, documenting what governments knew when they knew it about climate change and how they played the leading and role in, uh, you know, an impacted uh, climate crisis. So I'm just curious, I just got it uh, literally, that's, uh, I was just looking for the exact title to share with you, but I just got it. So it's my plan to read it and see whether I agree with it or I don't agree with it, but but certainly very provocative. Uh, The reason I find it provocative is that I was involved when the first IPCC report came out. And I remember at that time, uh, there was a lot of people who were not investing in infrastructure or climate-related areas really had a lot of doubt about it. And you may remember the controversies around those reports. And it's only like 20 years ago, right? So so I find that there's a lot more that is coming out uh, from the universities um, and from um, academics and others on the topic. But but it's interesting that, um, you know, the report this time became much more of a household name. So hopefully we will have more of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I share your curiosity in this book and, and maybe a little bit of skepticism. But Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very provocative. <laughs> I think I found the title. It's um, They Knew, The U.S. Federal Government's 50-Year Role in Causing the Climate Crisis. Just came out. So uh, yeah, sounds like a really interesting read again, whether you agree with it or not. Um, so once again, Afsane Bechlas from the Rock Creek Group, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with you. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.